The Athletic. The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Now. With a Now Sports membership, you can watch the biggest moments from the Women's Super League live. Find out more at nowtv.com. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Women's Football Podcast in partnership with Now. Coming up, England all white on the night, a Barcelona player locks in the Ballon d'Or and we follow the centenary of the ban on women's football. It's Lindsay Hooper and Kate Borsay here, joined by former captain of the Lionesses and Arsenal, Faye White. Faye, great to have you back on the show. It feels like ages, actually. I think you've been doing lots of BBC coverage, lots of punditry. And with Arsenal going as well as they are, are you in demand right now? <laughs> um, no, no, well, I've been quite busy, but it's just good to see Arsenal back up where they should where I feel they belong but um yeah not so much massive demand but it's uh, still good to be talking about the women's game and, and following you know the WSL overall really we'll get into the game later but I hope you've warmed up after your appearance on ITV at the Stadium of Light Faye <laughs> it looked absolutely freezing it was. It was something like minus five wind chill. Um, and me and Emerald Heskey um, a couple of times were literally um, couldn't get our words out because it was like the, the coldness <laughs> kind of got, you know, got us. And we, our lips were chattering. We we're trying to not show that on the telly. But oh, my God, I've not felt cold like that for a long time. And I had so much admiration again for the girls to be out there in shorts and T-shirts. Short I've forgotten what it's like. Obviously, when you're running around, you've got the, you know, the, you're, you're getting warm and got the adrenaline and everything. But yeah, stood there. I was luckily that during the game got to go inside and could watch it from a big open box kind of thing. So it was, I've just felt for the crowd as well. Try not to give it away. (laughs) (laughs) At least Emil had a hat. (laughs) He did, didn't he? He got away with putting a hat on and um, can't really do that. (laughs) Well, we'll get into the nuts and bolts of the game in just a moment. All eyes at Sunderland Stadium of Light were looking out for Ellen White's famous eyes celebration on Saturday. They were hoping she could score on her 100th cap against Austria, the side she played on her England debut 11 years ago. And they weren't disappointed. Quick reactions from Fran Kirby on the rebound fed White for a close range volley to seal a 1-0 win and put her one away from the Lionesses' all-time scoring record. So, Faye, 1-0 to England against Austria, arguably their biggest test so far. How would you assess their performance, the way that they set up and how they approach the game? Um, Yeah, well, I think first half, um, England controlled it very well, really. First five, ten minutes, it seemed like a lot of the tax went down hemp um, side on the left, but then it quite quickly grew into that Mead and Fran Kirby were linking up brilliantly a lot on that right-hand side. Um, And I, I... think really controlled the game. I can't really recall much happening um, with Mary at a couple of corners, I think, that she had, you know, defensively we had to deal with. But yeah, the first half I felt very, very encouraged. And uh, obviously Frank Kirby for me was standout in that. I think there was a bit of space between uh, the defence and the midfield for Austria. So she could pick up those little pockets of space that she does so well. And it looked like Frank Kirby kind of playing like she does for for Chelsea, really, controlling games, really being influential, um, which we haven't seen her do a lot, um, I think, for England and and regularly for England due to injury or or what have you or not having regular playing games. But um, I think uh, Austria got wise to that in the second half um, and did reduce that space a little bit for them, certainly for Toon and Kirby to kind of not pick up the ball so much. Um, And then obviously Mary Herbs was forced into two quite... Important saves, wasn't it? Um, mm. I think we had a penalty. I think it should have been a penalty on Mead. Um, but generally, that I suppose for Viegman, Serena Viegman, it would be a better game for her to assess the team performance and those individual players and see how they could uh, manage the momentum of a game and hold out a game as well after having not really been challenged in the last four games pre- preceding that. But I think that shows kind of the development of Austria and the fact that they got to semi-finals in the Euros last time and 
Um, obviously qualified again for this this tournament in England's group. So yeah, I think we had a, a certainly more comfortable possession than they did certainly first half. But it just shows their growth and also some good defenders really. And I thought Austria did defend well on the night. Ellen White then the twelfth player to enter the one hundred club with the goal that decided this one. And you've played with Ellen. You've also played with Kelly Smith, the the person she's chasing down this record for. How do they compare? Um, well, very, yeah, very different, even though strikers, but so different in the way they affect the game and certainly how their teammates saw them. But Ellen, I can't um, speak highly enough of Ellen when she, I, I said, um, actually, I remember Ellen coming into the team and playing in that Austria, her debut, and she scored on her debut. And it was from an angle which you thought, how has she scored that? You know, just to come in and handle the whole occasion and and score. Um, you could tell just from her attitude, from the way she is around the team, very much a team player you know, always willing to learn, works incredibly hard. So, yeah, I mean, to see her to go on to achieve 100 caps, kind of knew it was always because you can tell the character of players when they come in, if they've got the right mentality to be have that kind of longevity in their career. And she, without doubt, has and had the resilience to bounce back from injuries, etc. Um, some quite severe injuries as well. Um, and then to, in the last, what, four, three, four, five years, to really home and change her game from that chasing forward who would do so much work for the team, but not always necessarily be on the end of things. She does that now. And we saw that in the World Cup, didn't we, with the amount of goals she got. But yeah, I mean, comparing her to Kelly, Kelly was much more of a technical player. Ellen leads the line amazingly. And all all credit to her to nearly get to that, um, uh, obviously, uh, the record. She doesn't doesn't take penalties. Kelly did. So Kelly did get quite a few of them as penalties. She's taken the odd one, Ellen, but not known for that. So it's even more credible, really. As you mentioned, Serena Weigman would have learnt more about her team after this game than some of the other qualifiers. What would be some of her biggest takeaways, do you think, Faye? Well, obviously, the, f- the fact that they had to work out more challenges within the game. So as a team, as players, they had to be a bit more patient, I suppose, had to up their performances individually in one-on-one battles around the pitch because let's say a couple of the, I think the defenders were harder to get past. You know, Beth Mead struggled, a, not struggle, but I thought she took too many touches trying to, um, you know, get that goal at the ground. I agree. Ground, you know, it was that trying too hard, I think. And even saw a VT of her saying she's her worst own critic when she actually thinks too much. When she just does it naturally, she's better. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's just having that step up, isn't it? She hasn't, Friedman hasn't seen them under that pressure or that kind of challenge with the players that she introduced as well, seeing how they react, how, you know, there's always new things, how, you know, different players when certain players aren't there, you know, how they they perform, etc. So I think she you just know that, you know, there's more obviously to come, um, but it was her first real test. She, she's, she's been on the other side, hasn't she, watching England when she was the Netherlands coach um, and knowing maybe this is where we might be able to find their weaknesses. So now... She's got that from her, you know, in her locker, I suppose, that she can now try and build. This is what we thought were their weaknesses. We can try and home in on that to strengthen now so that they're not so much there and other teams aren't going to exploit England going forward and into next summer. When I saw that you were on this show, Faye, I was so excited. I thought this was genius booking by our producer, Sophie, because as captain of Arsenal, former England captain, there is a captaincy debate right now. And in this game, we saw Millie Bright as captain. We've had Leah Williamson in the absence of Steph Horton being injured. Who do you think is most equipped to step in when Steph's not there at the moment, number one? And number two, has the role of captain since you were captain, do you think it's changed at all? Yeah, the, first, the second question, I'm, I'm sure it has, yeah, because the game's moved on to professionalism. All the, the, the kind of psyche of all players on the team is a lot more professional than what it would have been. Uh, that I felt that um, when I was captain, it was very much being the leader, being an example. Everything I did was professional because we were trying to get to that. If I couldn't show it then you know, or be it, then no one else was going to you know, want to you know, change their way. And that obviously there's a bit more profile on the women's game as well, that a uh, bit more expectation. But I mean, I felt a lot of expectation when I was leader purely because it we needed to push things. We needed to get more. Um, that was like, very much a big part of my role was off the field, trying to get the intention, doing all the interviews, doing, you know, and having to manage all that. And where I think the players from that side may be a little bit more shielded, protected. 
Um, mm-hmm. a little bit but on the field it's about for me for first and foremost is about your performance are you that type of player that players can look up to who you could sort out things calmly can you step up when the big moments come in a game can you step up when you're playing against a bit better opposition how did you rate Millie Bright then well I think Millie's a, she's a consistent defender consistent performer Again, it's knowing the mindset of a coach because sometimes coaches like certain positions as their captain. Sometimes it's the more the qualities of the player. I think she did well. I think she stepped up a little bit. In, if I'm honest, I, I, I mean, she. I think she. She's not. She's not the the current captain at Chelsea. I think she stepped in a few times, but she's not used to captaining the team uh, or a team. But then saying that neither is Leah, but she's been um, a captain through all the age groups of in, international. Um, it's an expectation or something that's been spoke about with Leah, just from the way she is. I've saw it at Arsenal and knew she will become England captain. I'm sure I have, I'm pretty sure of that just from the way she holds herself, the way she's humble, the way she interacts with people, um, the way she performs. I think recently in the last few games, she's certainly stepped up to in her performances and, and took that challenge on without any kind of problems in those games where she was captain. If anything, it made her game better. And that's another great sign that, you know, that she'll fit that role even more. Um, and she has done it a few times with Arsenal. Obviously, Kim is the current captain, then Jordan, but certainly at like lower age group level as well. But yeah, I mean, it, again, it's hard without knowing the knowing what type of coach or uh, what quality Serena Vigman puts on it. But I think Millie Who is your well, pick, though, Faye? Yeah, well, I can't see Millie being the future captain for England, personally. I... I I think I mean I think when Steph's back fit I think she she will be you know captain I don't think she's done anything wrong I think she shows in big games that she steps up and performs better and has and it's it's looking around when sometimes on the field when things aren't going right which of the players are the ones that kind of go right you do that you do that, you know and and we get and that just do it and without too much kind of focus on them they got to be a team player as well in the background put their feelings aside and be able to put the team first, which not everyone can do, believe it or not. Um, but yeah, I, I think for if Steph comes back fit and can and gets good game time, then I think she will continue to be captain. Um, but for me, a pick going forward would, would definitely be Leah. Well, England play again against Latvia on Tuesday at 7pm at the Keepmoat Stadium in Doncaster, where Ellen White will be hoping to go on and break that all-time scoring record. Remember, they beat Latvia 10-0 in October. Faye's grimacing there, as I say, 10-0. It could be a bit of a goal fest again. Uh, Just a note that Nikita Paris has left the camp for a few days rest, but they haven't called up a replacement for her. Well, let's look at the other Home Nations World Cup qualifiers. Northern Ireland well and truly thumped North Macedonia 11-0 and 9-0. Rachel Furness scored five in total to become Northern Ireland's record scorer, male or female. Wales, they beat Greece 5-0 and Scotland drew one all with Ukraine after an injury time equaliser from Abby Harrison. Belgium, by the way, also beat Armenia 19-0. That's the biggest winning margin. <laughs> and you thought 10-0 was big from your face, Faye. 19-0. Uh, the biggest winning margin this century in a World Cup qualifier. Coming up, Wales face France and Scotland play Spain, both on Tuesday night. And now four of the Spanish team had to rush home on a chartered flight from Paris for that Scotland game because they had the glitz and glam on Monday night of the Ballon d'Or. Yes, they graced the red carpet. There was no questioning about twerking for this one. Thank goodness. Let's set the scene. And the winner of the Ballon d'Or is... It's Spain and Barcelona's Alexia Pateas. Hey! <laughs> I'll be the crowd in the background, Faye. You, you can be the one that gives her the trophy. Congratulations to Pateas. She joins Arda Hegerberg and Megan Rapino as the only winners of the award. Pateas was the highest scoring midfielder in Europe last season with 26 goals, including one in the Champions League final win over Chelsea. She also won the UEFA Women's Player of the Year. So, Faye, was it the right choice to come in at number one? 
I think most people were expecting her. That's what I certainly heard. I mean, I think with women's football, it's a little bit harder because we don't always see the footage, do we? I mean, I did remember, I did watch the Champions League final and saw how amazing Barcelona were um, against Chelsea and certainly how um, instrumental she was in that game. Obviously, there's no big, apart from the Olympics, obviously, but no other like UEFA or um, sorry Euros or World Cup that we could see the players in. From you know, we it's more I think on the women's game more of stats and how um, you know how they they've been doing for their clubs more so. Um, but yeah, I think she's an out and out. She's an amazing player. She's some Spain have some uh, unbelievable players. So it's look, I'm going to be looking forward to watching them in uh, obviously in the summer in the Euros. But yeah, I mean there are some good names on there, isn't there? And I think you can argue that that any of them really. I mean, I, I do think Vivian Miedemar, how she's not won it, um, is, a, is a big, um, not this year, but in, in previous years. Um, but just, and I'm sure going forward, she will too. But yeah, no, I think with the way that Spain are, and certainly Barcelona with that Champions League win, it, it, it was a, probably the thing that tipped it over. But yeah, I'm excited to see what she does in the summer. Yeah, she's best known for her passing, isn't she? In set piece technique, the ultimate midfield general. So much goes through her in both Barcelona and in Spain. She's she's just wonderful to watch. Well, in second place behind her, a full 102 points behind her, by the way, teammate Jennifer Hermoso. Sam Kerr came third. Amidamar, who you've mentioned, who's also just won the BBC and Football Supporters Association Women's Player of the Year awards, came fourth. Just a quick look at the full finishing order, Faye. I noticed that Jesse Fleming is above Frank Kirby. So you've got Jesse Fleming in, in ninth, Frank Kirby in 10th. But I suppose that was probably, well, it's going to be based around Jesse's performance at the Olympics, isn't it, for Canada? But I do feel a bit hard done by on Frank Kirby's behalf, I have to say. Um, well, that's the thing. I think it's, again, league performances. She's, you, you would argue, one of the best in the WSL, isn't it? And like Sam Kerr, perhaps he has the added benefit of the um, Olympics, maybe, because really you couldn't put Sam Kerr or Fran. They're very much similar in the WSL, aren't they? And how they've performed um, and how they've worked with each other, assisting, giving goals to each other, etc. But Sam Kerr obviously had that Olympics doing a bit better than Fran didn't didn't really um, impact on the Olympics as much. So, but yeah, to see Jesse Fleming above them when we see the WSL and she's not really starting for Chelsea but then does amazingly for a Canadian, um, you know, for the mm. national team. So um, that's what I mean. It's sometimes it's a bit hard to know exactly what's, what's, what's the main focus. Is it country or, or club? Or, um, and uh, I think it's only we can have a more informed situation when we actually see more of these national, the, the other league games. And obviously in the women's game, we don't see that as much as the men's. Well, four WSL players made the top 10. They're all off on international duty right now, but there's still some news, some home news to update you all on. Yeah, and I love it when I get notes from producer Sophie because she often likes to bring a musical theme in on occasions. <laughs> Kate's smiling because she's been she's been the victim of this on occasion and now I have to deliver, it says here in brackets, in a queen style. I'll give it my best shot. I wasn't the actress of the group. That was Kate Borsay. She went to acting school, but let's go for it. You need to clarify uh, which queen though. I will. Hopefully you'll get it. Hopefully you'll understand from this. Another one gone and another one gone. Another one bites the dust. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you get it. Jonathan Morgan became the third WSL manager to leave his club this season. Leicester City had no points after eight games and the club are desperate not to be relegated in their first WSL season. Morgan will likely be remembered as a hero for the Foxes in terms of where he's taken them from fourth tier right up to the top tier, overseeing their switch from semi-pro to professional as well. Were we expecting this one, Faye, in terms of an exit? And this is, as we've said, the third of the season so far, considering what he'd done for the club. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think many would expect a team to come up into the WSL um, and to be winning straight away and be able to, you know, make, you know, jump that big gulf that is obviously between the championship and the WSL. So yeah, it's a bit, it's a, it's a hard one, but I think also it shows the intent of the club maybe they feel that they need someone that might have a bit more awareness of and link with um or pulling power maybe to bring in other players maybe into their club 
but they maybe felt he's been in for so long. He gave him a bit, you know, of time in the WSL, but maybe the, you just don't know what's happening behind the scenes and how the changing room feel. I mean, I actually was quite, I think it was the Chelsea Leicester game I watched and I was quite impressed with how they played um, against Chelsea in that they didn't just sit behind the ball um, and defend for their lives for the whole game. Like we've seen, you know, Birmingham do certainly, I remember last season, they literally put a bus in front of Chelsea and still <laughs> yeah. lost five or six nil. Whereas Leicester didn't, they, I thought they, they were playing some good stuff and giving it a go really and trying to test Chelsea and not give them too much respect. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's it seems to be the way it's already happening in the women's game that the managers don't get very long. Perhaps Leicester had just run out of patience and needed to do something before too many games tick by. Well, it's just been announced that Lydia Bedford's going to join Leicester City on a coaching secondment until the end of the WSL season. What are your thoughts on that, Faye? Yeah, indeed. Um, I think it's um, Lydia Bedford. I don't know too much about her, but obviously know that she's been at the FA a long time and been at the youth level. And it's a sensible approach. You know, we need to keep building for this club. We can't just throw money at it because they obviously maybe don't have it or don't want to have that approach to it. Have someone with a good, not sound knowledge of what's the future in the women's game going to be those players and have those maybe that draw of being able to bring some of those players to the club. Well, in other WSL news, um, Spurs forward Kit Graham, she's been ruled out for the rest of the season with an ACL injury. That's going to be a big blow for Tottenham, isn't it, Faye? Yeah, huge. I thought she, her, she uh, the games I've seen them play this season has been really influential, um, real driving force, um, scoring some good goals, taking some shot, long shots from range, testing keepers, etc. And uh, had a good little partnership kind of, established with Williams Rachel Williams so mm. yeah massive. when I saw that I was like I felt for because Spurs are obviously on a high doing well and you just don't need that bit of fortune really when you want to get there and stay there and, and kind of grow a mentality within the squad that's a that is a big blow for them I think and as I'm looking at you with a lovely family picture behind you we've also got to pass on our congratulations to Scotland and Reading's Emma Mitchell who became a mum she put a really cute picture didn't she uh, on Instagram but the baby looked a little disgruntled they can look like that at the beginning stages you're both going to tell me <laughs> she right? looked delighted the baby didn't <laughs> <laughs> yeah they don't, don't always pull the, the the smiling cute face when when you want them to do they <laughs> Well, another mum in the news recently is Formiga's mum. She's afraid of flying, but she got on a plane to see her daughter play for the first time because it was Formiga's last ever game with Brazil. Wait until the last minute, why don't you? Uh, that's right. The actual goat Formiga has retired from international football. At 43 years old, she's ended her 26-year international career, including seven World Cups and seven Olympics. Brazil won 6-1 against India in the friendly, but Formiga only got to play 15 minutes, coming on as a sub. Were you not tempted to go on until 43, Faye? <laughs> <laughs> Look at the laughter. The Maybe. laughter. Um, I, I could just about have a five-minute kick around in the garden with my boys and then the knees and the back and the hip kind of go all oh, the next day, you know. Wow, I'm just hats off to someone that can play that long. I mean, it is impacted maybe on the number of injuries, etc. you get. But yeah, I mean, she's midfielder too, so she would have covered a wow. lot of kilometres in those games as well. So yeah, it's amazing. And you get those rare ones, don't you, every now and then, even in the men's game as well, that they carry on for such a long time mm. and... Yeah, she, she was a player that I, you know, remember wanting to play against and was playing when I started. So, you know, she's, <laughs> she's still going after you. Me, so you're like, oh wow, God. yeah, hats off to her. Well, 10 years before Famiga was born, women weren't officially allowed to play football in England. On the 5th of December 1921, the FA banned women's football, which makes this weekend the 100-year anniversary of that ban. To find out more about the ban, we spoke to former footballer and historian Gail Newsham and Patricia Gregory, the only surviving original officer of the Women's FA, who spearheaded the end of the ban. Gail, let's start with you and just set the scene, really. What was women's football like before the ban in 1921? How big was it? It was absolutely huge. Those women were blazing a trail for, for women's football back in the day. I mean, the Dick Curl ladies in particular, they were playing in front of thousands and thousands of people. And the biggest crowd that they played in, of course, was the famous Goodison match on Boxing Day 1920, when 53,000 people packed into the ground. And what makes that 
even more amazing is that during that weekend, the festive weekend, Everton had played at home the day before and Liverpool were playing at home in the afternoon. And yet still 53,000 people came to watch a women's football match and there were between 10 and 14,000 locked out, unable to get in. So, you know, women's football was huge. But for me, I think that was probably a wake-up call to the, you know, male football establishment. It feels like we're starting to hear a lot more about Dick Kerr ladies because of Lily Parr. I've certainly seen a, a children's book that's been written about her in, in recent years. And a little bit more has started to be made of that story, Gail. But in terms of the research and the number of people that you've spoken to and the amount of hours spent trying to find out this pre-1921 era, what were some of the, the biggest discoveries you think you made as well as as Lily? Well, we've got sidetracked with Lily. There's lots of misinformation about Lily Parr out there as well. You know, I did a, a talk on her the other day. She's been used to fit an agenda. And, and what you all think that exists with Lily, Lily Parr doesn't, she wasn't what they've made her out to be. She was just an ordinary lass who was a good player with a good left foot. But what stuck out to me was, you know, um, people like Alice Kell, Florrie Redford, Jenny Harris, Jessie Wormsley. These women were great footballers and, and, and the public loved them particularly little Jenny Harris. Everybody loved Jenny. She was only four foot ten, but by heck, could we play football? You know, she was absolutely incredible. She could dribble, dribble past defenders, like, and just leaving them in her wake. And at the end of, when they played the French team at Deepdale in 1920, the spectators carried her shoulder high off, off the pitch. You know, everybody loved Jenny. She was just an incredible player, such a naturally gifted individual, you know, and, and nobody talks about them. Gail, how did the ban come about and how immediate was it? Well, it, it, it was immediate. Yeah, the 5th of December 1921, the FA banned women's football. But for me, I mean, I could be wrong, but my, my perception of it is the Goodison match particularly was the death knell because there was, you know, 53,000 came to watch them. And in 1920, Dick Curl ladies played 31 games of football. But when they played at Goodison, they raised £3,115 for charity, which would be looking at about 150 grand today. Well, everybody realised then, get the Dick Curl ladies in town and we'll get a bigger crowd. So throughout 1921, they played 67 games of football. So they doubled the, the match rate, you know, more than. And nine, almost 900,000 people came to watch them. So I think, you know, it, there, were, there were probably lots of reasons, but... You know, the threat of it, of women's football becoming so big was, I think, was a dominant factor in, in what happened. And so during 1921, the FA made it increasingly more difficult for, for women's football to, to, to continue. And that was the decision that they made at the end of the year. And they banned it, but the Dick Curl ladies carried on playing despite that right through to 1965. So that, that's what makes them special for me. Patricia, let's bring you in then, because let's fast forward a little bit now. And you're waking up to the realisation that at one point in your life, Tottenham are bringing back a cup, the men's team. Your dad is going to be a big part of wanting to go and see that. You're taking it all in and you're thinking, I don't see any women playing football because there'd been this ban and, and you're at the point of thinking women's football hasn't existed, doesn't exist. Am, am I right in saying that at that point? Well, at that point, I knew nothing about the 1921 ban. My father resisted taking me to, to with him to Spurs for some years. I didn't go till I was about 15. And obviously by 67, when I was 19, he did concede. And we, we had been to several matches, not the cup final, I'm afraid. Tickets were then, and as they are now, difficult to get hold of. But we did go down to Tottenham Town Hall to see Spurs bring back the cup. And I remember being in the crowd and thinking, why don't girls play football? So I wrote to my local paper um, posing this question. They printed a piece about me and girls responded saying, can I join your team? So it was only at that point when I approached the local council for training facilities and a pitch that the council said, no, you're unaffiliated football you can't have access to any of these facilities because of the 1921 ban. So that was the first realisation that there was actually a problem. What year was this? Just to remind us, Patricia. 1967. 1967. So you were undeterred 
you did start to start to arrange matches, but how but how difficult was it? How did you do it? Oh well, yeah, it was difficult. Gail will probably remember. Um, we um, I wrote again to the local paper to say we couldn't get facilities. And a men's team from Tottenham said, come and share our training facilities, not their pitch, their training facilities. I then wrote to a soccer magazine asking for opponents because, of course, we had no pitch on which to host anybody. So we were reliant upon going to somebody else's pitch. Boys and men's teams replied. So we went and played them, which, of course, absolutely was definitely um, against everything. Uh, But another person who replied to me was Arthur Hobbs. Arthur is integral in the story of modern women's football because he, in 1967, was holding the first deal tournament for women's teams and he had eight teams. We went down, we were too late to enter, but we weren't organised enough anyway as a team. We went down to view it and the deal tournament went on for several years and We did participate in 1968, we being my team, which eventually got a name White Ribbon, and we participated. The thing about my team was we were no good uh, at playing football. We absolutely absolutely weren't. I've always been quite a good organiser, so I suppose that's why, in in conjunction with Arthur, Arthur had the the thought that we ought to be more organised, and out of that deal tournament, teams got together uh, formed into leagues, and we it was the catalyst for forming the Women's Football Association. And we're, the first official meeting was 1st of November 1969. Wow. And Gail, you started playing in the 1970s. You actually went on to reach two semi-finals of the FA Cup, and we've got a big FA Cup weekend this weekend. So, so take me back to when you were playing and you were starting out. What was the reason given to you at the time as a young girl when you were wanting to play that, that football had been banned for so long? Well, I didn't know there, there was a ban. It's just, you know, it was just, we weren't allowed to play. You didn't ask questions, you know, you, you just, that was how, how it was. Girls couldn't play football. I mean, when I was in junior school, our, even our playgrounds were separate. The boys were on one side and, and we were on the other. And it was just girls couldn't play football. So I just played football with lads. That's, you know, that's how, how it was. And I was the only girl in, in all these, you know, games on the park or in the street or wherever we were. But I can remember the very first time I saw women playing football, it was on just outside Preston North End and the Preston North End Supporters Club ladies were, were playing. And I didn't have the confidence to go up and, and say, Yo, you know, can I can I join in? Or they looked all very well organised and, and all that. So... I never really got involved then, uh, but when I when I did, I've, I've played for Peter Craig ladies, and to actually play in a in a in a proper team of of women against it, it was just you know it was like every day was Christmas Day. It was just wonderful to, to you know to have that opportunity to play in the team, and yeah, it was wonderful. It, it, and I'm sort of like never looked back after that. You know, women's football was. You know what I wanted to do. I was always very active in the in the game when you know whenever I was around, and always wanted to promote it and and you know make sure that people knew that we existed. You know, and that women could play. Anybody that said you know women can't play football, I said, well, come and watch us then. Patricia, tell us, and for anyone listening who who isn't aware, how the ban eventually fell. Well, like like everything that we did, it was gradual. Arthur, who I've mentioned, was very keen on getting the women's FA started. And he just attacked everything from different angles. So he got his local MP on side, but he didn't didn't stay there. He involved in the formation of the women's FA each of the political parties. So he got a representative to be a a vice president of the the nascent uh, women's FA. But he was in touch with the football authorities from the 60s and he did things like the very first cup final in 1971. He got Dennis Follows' wife to present the trophy. Now, that's always a good ruse, is to get the wife of, of the man who's holding things up. And I'm not saying Dennis was, but uh, because he was very helpful to us. And eventually, when he left the FA, he became a vice president of the Women's FA. So he did an awful lot for us. 
But if you can't get to the man directly, then you invite their wife to present the cup. <laughs> it's brilliant. So, so we did that. We did that with successive Football Association chairmen, and it works because they are captive audience. And Arthur was very good at at that sort of um, that sort of thing. He got in touch with the with the authorities, and we eventually got not a very large admin grant, but a little admin grant because we didn't get any money from the FA until about 1974, I think it was. Wow, can't remember offhand. So we were we were a totally voluntary body. All our people were volunteers. I would go to work during the day, come home, have my dinner provided by my mother, and and go upstairs and start again on typing, as did everybody who was running a club, running, um, doing all the paperwork for the clubs, the leagues, and, and the association. It wasn't until 1981 that we felt, shall we say, confident enough to open an office and hire somebody who we paid until we handed everything over in 1993 to the FA when we were quite heavily in debt and we realised that the only way the sport was going to progress in the way it needed to was to have the resources of the Football Association behind it. What do you think Dick Kerr's ladies, Gail? And this is a really impossible question for you to answer, I guess, because there's a lot that probably aren't here now. But what, what do you think they would have made of, of the way the game's gone on and developed? They'd love it. You know, the ones that have, when they came to the Lancashire Trophy, that's where they were reunited. You know, the, the, the interaction between them and, and the, the current players was fantastic to see. You know, they loved it, but they thought they played better football, of course. Um, <laughs> of course. Uh, yeah. No, they, 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 they would love it. And, and they've supported me along the way as well so many times, you know, to, to, to promote women's football because, you know, they, they love it just as much uh, as we do. I am intrigued, Gail, about what you were saying earlier on Lily Parr, how she's perhaps been a bit misinterpreted. She's sort of become the brand a little bit. Just, just, just elaborate on that because that's because that's fascinating to me. I've not, I've not heard that before. Yeah, she would hate what they, they've done to her. To be honest with you, Lily Parr was um, a very shy person, incredibly shy, with a, a profound inferiority complex. Fantastic sense of humour, decent human being, didn't think she was anything special, but had a good left foot and played longer than anybody else. And that's what makes her special. But somebody wrote a fictional account of the Dick Curl ladies and they made her out to be a beer-swilling, chain-smoking activist and, and all this other kind of stuff, uh, which just is totally not true. I met so many people that knew Lily Parr. And this is where it's all come from, you know, the original thing about Lily Parr. I nominated her to be into the Hall of Fame because there were nobody else. You know, I would think I was the only female women's football researcher back, back then because I'd done the work into it. There were nobody else to ask. And she really was just a token woman. There was nothing more. They just wanted a name on there to say that they thought about women. That's all. And, and then this fictional account was written and made her out to be... Well, like we all think she is, and she's not. And all the ladies in, that I knew that knew Lily, they're appalled. You know, they know that she wasn't like what they're making her out to be. She might have been a bit rough around edges, you know. She might not have been everybody's cup of tea. But that lass was a decent human being. Once you were her friend, you were her friend for life, and she'd do out for you. You know, she. if you read my book, you'll get the, you'll get the truth about it. She worked as a nurse at Whittingham Hospital. And she met one day, this lady had been, you know, released into the community and, and Lily was out doing some shopping. And she, she came across this person and she was really pleased to see her, how are you getting on? And she wasn't doing so well and she was about to have her electricity cut off. And Lily asked how much it was and she told her and, and Lily gave her the money there and then, yeah, lass, go, go and get it sorted. You know, she was just a decent human being. Mm. She got on with her life. Once All of these, all of the women, once they stopped playing... They never talked about it again. It was just what they did. like, And then they got on with their life. And Lily Parr has, has been made into something that never existed. And it breaks my heart to tell you the truth, uh, what's been done to her. Because she's just been used to fit an agenda. That's all. Well, it's and, also and a shame that we felt that we've needed to turn her into that character 
to make it saleable, to make it to make it a gimmick almost. Do you know what exactly. I mean? We've needed to kind of turn her into that. But Lily was where, where do people learn more about those other other players? Why don't they? Because where can a- where can they? In my you're, sh- you're holding up that book. Yeah, <laughs> this is what everyone needs. You know, Christmas is around the corner. So there's exactly. other players that, that people can learn about. I mean, obviously we can't do it all in, in this no, show, but... Absolutely. It's, I only, it's been republished just a couple of weeks ago and there is so much information about everybody in there. New players, well, not new players, but players that people knew nothing about before. We have, we have two World War heroines, one in the First World War, one in the Second World War. These people deserve to be remembered for their courage and bravery and what they did for our country, not as well as playing football. And, and you know, the pioneers from the beginning, Alice Kell, first ever captain of the team, wonderful, wonderful player, great figurehead, wonderful person, absolutely amazing. You know, people need to read and, and, and you know, read the proper book, the true book, and, and, and just... Learn to, learn to love the real people. And, and there's loads in there about Lily Potter coming to end of her life, you know, after she'd had her operations and people that were working with her and her work ethic. What a great person she was. You know, it's all in there. And that's the truth. And, I, and I, I'm passionate about telling the truth, really. Poor Lily. It's called In a League of Their Own. And you only need to search Gail Newsham to be able to find out details of it. Patricia, I just want to come back to you and talk about whether there is, and we can hear from Gail there, that there's a little bit of bitterness, really, or upset about how the women's game had to be manufactured from the 1920s to make it a story. What about you and how you feel about the FA having ignored the women's game for so long? And they obviously remedied that eventually. Was there any ill feeling that it took them so long to do that? And have they handled it in the right way since? I don't, I don't think there's ill feeling. There's a, a tinge of regrets that in 1971, UEFA, it had a vote in November 71 to take control of women's football. There were then 32 members of UEFA. And the vote was 31 to 1 that they should take control. The one, by the way, was not England, it was Scotland. But because it was 31 to 1, they had to come around. So the FA had already recognised the women's FA, but they made an official announcement in in 1972 that the women's FA was recognised as the sole governing body of women's football in this country at the present time. Most of Europe chose to take control of women's football by having it as an integral part of their associations. So Germany, Spain, France, all over all over Europe. The Football Association, just for England, obviously, they chose to recognise the Women's FA. So we did not become an integral part of the Football Association, but we had, they were very helpful to us in referees and, and facilities and things like that. So they were very helpful and their staff were very helpful. But I often wonder, and it's an impossible thing to to quantify, what progress we might have made if we had become an integral part of the Football Association in 1971-72 and the other British associations too. We we have now caught up, although we we didn't do so badly in the WFA years. We got to the European final for national teams in 1984. So we didn't do too badly, but we didn't have the wherewithal, the resources to invest in the game, which we finally recognised in 1993. And by 1993, the FA had decided that they should take control of women's football. So there is, you could say there is some regret that what might have been, but we all spend our lives thinking about what might have been. I think we do, but I think... Patricia, and I'm going to ask both of you this and bring Gail in as well. The problem is we're still feeling the effects of it, aren't we? I mean, Kate and I have worked in women's football for a decade, which is a which is a tiny patch in comparison to, to your experience. But one of the things that sickens me sometimes are the com- comparisons with men's football and why isn't women's football as good? I mean, we've only had a professional top league for a very short amount of time. So how long do you think, in your opinions, we're going to feel the effect of this 50-year ban for. And 
And how do we put it right? And I suppose, Patricia, you're the first person to start with with the how. How do we put Well, we, we put it right by the millions of pounds that seems to be flooding into the game through television. We put it right by making sure that that money is evenly distributed down the chain. I know that the FA has a pyramid and they are investing heavily, but I think the money shouldn't just, I hope the money just doesn't go to the top clubs, that it does get down to the grassroots in order to provide that safe foundation that, let's face it, the Women's FA passed on to the FA. Everything we did over nearly 25 years has helped form the foundation that you see today in Women's Super League. But money is always so important, the investment of people. And also getting it onto television is is so very important so that little girls can see that there is a pathway for them. Gail? Yeah, I think educating people about the history is an important thing as well to try to change opinions. Um, I know when, when I used to go around doing my talks about the Dick Curl ladies, I'd sometimes go to all male audiences and uh, <laughs> it was it was interesting. But a lot of men would come up to me afterwards with tears in their eyes and saying they didn't realise and how, you know, how it had changed their opinion. So that I think I think the history changes people's opinion and I think we need to do we do really, really do need to change people's opinions. Look, it's been so lovely to speak to you both. A real honour as well. Two absolute titans of the women's game. And long may that continue. Gail Newsham and Patricia Gregory. Really good to speak to you. Thank you. That was us speaking to Gail Newsham and Patricia Gregory. And it feels incredible, Faye, just having that chat with them, to think that They were right in the thick of it at the time when the ban was introduced. It was in their time. But how did it go on to affect you, do you think, in your career? Well, I mean, yeah, well, it affected me by the fact that I just didn't know women's football existed, really, when I was a young girl. Um, I used to want to play it and just had this love of playing football. But as I started to become captain of England and Arsenal and did more media, etc., then also was often reminded and told about the ban and um, kind of, you know, everyone would always go on in 1971, you know, and the Dicker ladies in that time, etc. And you kind of knew a bit, a bit about the history, but not as much as you do now because we have so much more internet and social media, etc. And, and more people um, researching the women's game. But I mean, I, you know, some people say, are you annoyed that it got banned? That You can only go with what's in front of you at the time. I'm not someone that holds grudges or would, would waste my energy on worrying why didn't it happen, etc., you do sometimes think, oh, I wonder what the game would be like now, of course. But I just remember through my career just wanting to change people's perceptions, prove them wrong that women could play, women could love it as much as we, you know, as much as I did. And wanted to give those young girls in the future a role model to, to follow mm. and say, hang on, yeah, we can do this. I'm not going to let anyone tell me I can't. We're in a much better place now. And as we said, Sunday is the 50th anniversary of the Women's FA Cup. It's going to be an awesome game, isn't it? Apparently, 40,000 tickets already allocated for Arsenal versus Chelsea. It's at Wembley. Face such a tasty fixture. Linz is going to be there with her other half. I'm going to be there with 22 children, or that's how it feels. <laughs> um but I on the pitch, I can't believe you've signed yourself up oh, for this. I can't believe either. Uh, on the pitch, what have we signed ourselves up to? Well, yeah, I'm going to be there too, as, as it turns out, with my family. So I can't wait for it, just because the cup, FA Cup finals. I might just special. lend you a few children, Faye, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah, they can maybe. Notice how she didn't offer me any <laughs> to look after. Keep him busy, but um, yeah, no, it's going to be a great game, isn't it? Because obviously the two rivals in the WSL at the moment. Obviously Arsenal beat Chelsea at the start of the season, but there's that argument of well, weren't I don't think Fran and Sam Kerr were playing because of the Olympics, etc. Or needing to change, you know, rest them or introduce them at a later date because of uh, having rest after that summer tournament. But um, I do think if in, uh, in any other season you'd have asked me, I would have said I, I think well Chelsea will win just because Arsenal haven't shown that resilience and that cutting edge against the top teams. But with Jonas uh, Iverda, I think he's come in and kind of given that, them that edge, made them play a little bit more 
ruthless and direct when needed against the better teams, which I think was always missing from Arsenal's game. And often they sometimes played themselves into trouble against the better teams when they were pressing high up, trying to always play out from the back, etc. But And then there's also a big question mark of the fact that Leah Williamson's won't be playing and she's a quite big key, I think, player at the back. So, you know, will it be Jennifer Beattie and um, Wuba Moy maybe at the back and can they stand up? But I think it's going to be a good test and I kind of can't really call it this season because of those few changes I said that um, Jonas Iverdell has put in place and made them a little bit more resilient and belief that they can win this year. So it's going to be an interesting one, isn't it? But obviously it'd be a bit naive to not think who I really want to win. <laughs> well, we know, we know where your heart is, Faye, we do. It could be the 15th as well in the 50th year for Arsenal. 15th, it'd be 15th. Well, Chelsea secure the treble, don't they? It's hard to think back to last season, but that's where we're at, isn't it? Chelsea secure uh, the treble if they can beat Arsenal. Faye, you've won the FA Cup nine times with Arsenal. I mean, hugely important days for the side. You won the quadruple. The, the FA Cup was part of that. Do you have a standout memory from the competition at all? Well, I'm lucky to have so many <laughs> to play in those that many finals. But I suppose, that, I mean, the FA Cup was always special to me because it brought the crowds in. It was that one game that we knew would club football would be on telly and that, you know, we'd have the media interest around it. So those games, I think it's 2006, 2007, that I think we played at City Ground in Nottingham, that drew in 24,000 people. Back then, that's a massive crowd. Um, mm. it, you know, you think about 40,000 at Wembley, but hey, I, I think it should be more than that even now. Yes, the pandemic probably may not help. But yeah, the first year it was at Wembley, I think it was around 30,000. So you put the contents of 24,000 in, at the city ground into that puts it into context for me is that it showed that women's football could draw a crowd then and and it was always that atmosphere of young girls coming to the ground as teams in their teams and it was the celebration at the end of a long season for them um so those those memories um those are you know what stands out for me but I suppose the the main one would be from a personal playing point of view would be the first one in 98 because it was that first taste of what it felt like to be a winner in the FA Cup, even though the, the, I think it was about 2,000 in the new den at that time. It wasn't the big crowds then, but yeah, it's, uh, it's a, it is a special trophy. And the thought of the future generations get to lift it at Wembley is just like, it blows my mind and kind of does make me think, oh, I wish I could start all again. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's not, it's, it is what it is. And I had a great career, so... Well, the game kicks off on Sunday at 2pm. See you all there. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for for this show. It has whizzed by, but that is it for this edition of the Athletic Women's Football Podcast with Now. Faye, thank you very much for joining us. You said you're taking the kids. Do you go fully kitted up to the final? Uh, they they might put their kits on, yeah, because I have made them be Arsenal fans. <laughs> they might change when they grow up and get to an old age where they can decide themselves. But I, I hope that they want to put their tops on, but... I'm just I said I was going to say I'll keep an eye out for you but you know what I stand no chance because that is where we are at the game there's so many people there I stand no chance of spotting you but do enjoy it you enjoy it as well Kate with the 14 kids that you've got in tow <laughs> thank you make sure you wrap up wrap up warm everyone yeah uh, you can keep across our social channels for all updates at The Athletic UK at Offside Rule Pod as well and don't forget to download rate and subscribe wherever you get the show yeah please let us know how you're enjoying the show and we'll see you next time The Athletic Women's Football Podcast is proudly partnered with Now with a Now Sports membership you can watch the biggest moments from the Women's Super League live find out more at nowtv.com 